I invite you to turn your Bibles to Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Last week we started into uh, what I called the famous spy story of the Old Testament. If you were not here last week, I don't think it's a huge disadvantage because this is one of the most famous stories in all of the Scripture. I think it's one of the most familiar Last week in Numbers 13, we saw that the children of Israel wanted to know what the promised land was like. They had uh, exited Egypt, and they had made their way up, to, way, way up to the brink of the promised land. Uh, and so they decided, and Moses uh, set up so that they would send 12 scouts into the land to check it out. These spies then went into the land, came back, and declared that the land is good, but that the inhabitants are giants. And so as Moses tells the story, I think that the, the primary emphasis that he gives in chapter 13 is on the spies. When he turns to Numbers 14, the chapter we're going to look at today, he draws our emphasis to the people. Um, so just to show you this very quickly, if you look in chapter 13, just the first three verses there, chapter 13, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them, that is the spies, from the wilderness of Paran. And uh, we don't have time, but you can keep reading through chapter 13 and over and over and over again. You read about these men who went in to spy out the land. But then in chapter 14, the chapter we're going to look at today, the second half of the spy story, look with me at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and all the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. There becomes obvious as you just turn that kind of page in your Bible, turn to another chapter, that the emphasis now will be on all the people, all the congregation, all the sons of Israel. So the focus definitely turns. So today we will learn from some of the main characters in the second half of the spy story uh, the, the people or the congregation. Now, what I want to do today uh, to whet your appetite is I would like to read this story to you. So look in your Bible at Numbers 14. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It says, uh, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and all the people wept that night. And all the people, or sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. <coughs> The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Take note of that. We'll return to that later. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Take note of that too. You'll see that later. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt then. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the lands, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey, 
Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have yet put me to the test these ten times that have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble at me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. And of all your number... Listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you've rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness." And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer from your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
Surely will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men from Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and went to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? When that will not succeed, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you've turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presume to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. This is the whole story. I think the second half of the story has four scenes to it. This morning, we'll look at the first two. As we look at the first two scenes, I want to draw one lesson from each scene for us, one major application point for us. The first scene is verses 1 through 10, and I call it the crowd scene. The crowd scene is primarily about the congregation of Israel and their response to the 12 spies. The crowd scene starts with the crowd complaining in verses 1 through 4. Okay, so we just, we just read that. We won't take the time to look at that again, but in this scene, we will learn a lesson from those who lack faith. Okay, so the first lesson we're going to learn is from these people, the congregation. We're going to learn, learn a lesson from those who lack faith. The first two verses of the chapter, Moses makes the subject of the passage quite clear by using three different terms to identify the people. He calls them the congregation, verses 1 and verse 2, at the beginning of both of those verses. He calls them the people in the end of verse 1, and he calls them the people or the sons, could be translated literally, the sons or the children of Israel at the beginning of verse 2. So the whole congregation is his subject. And the, the point he makes about them is that the whole congregation responds in three ways. Okay, verses 1 and 2 and even into verse 3, you can see it very clearly. They, they first respond to the report from the spies. Remember, the spies have just given a bad report. By raising a loud cry, they then weep and they grumble. See that in your Bible? They raise a loud cry, they weep and they grumble. Okay, so instead of being inspired by the spy's story or Caleb's words about the faithfulness and power of God, and instead of putting their confidence in such a God to deliver them, they sob and cry. Okay, this is the picture here of this crowd scene. Their tears as well were not a light thing. 
It's very interesting to me at the end of verse 1, you look there, it says that they, they wept that night. Okay, well, it's interesting that as the Septuagint translates this uh, a little bit later on, they translate it or add the nuance that their tears or their weeping was all through the night. All through the night. So this was a night of tears for the entire congregation. They hear the report of the 12 spies, and throughout the whole night they're weeping. They're overwhelmed at the impossible situation before them, and so they just spend the night crying. Have you ever had a night like that? You're just overwhelmed with life or something thrown at you, and you just find yourself throughout the night just waking up, and every time you wake up, you're crying. That's these people. But that night and the following morning, then, they repeat some of the same errors that they had done before. They lack faith that God can give them the land. They then complain, and they wonder, their, their grumbling is, takes the form of them wondering why God brought, brought them out of Egypt. They wonder why they wouldn't have just died in Egypt, or wouldn't it be better to just die in the wilderness than to face these giants? And their conclusion after the sorrowful night, I think the next day, is that they need a different leader who will take them back to Egypt. So the crowd complains, verses 1 through 4. But then notice how the leaders in this crowd scene, notice how the leaders respond to that. You get like weeping people throughout the night next morning. Look at what these leaders do. Look in verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among them who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And said to all the congregation, the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So the crowd complains and then their leaders respond. There are two groups of two men in their response. Verse 5, you see the first thing that Moses and Aaron do is they fall down on their faces. And we're just left, you know, that's all we're told. So you got like this weeping, complaining, grumbling group, and then Moses and Aaron fall. Now, I must admit that to me there was a bit of intrigue into knowing, well, why do they fall on their faces? Okay, I do think it's an act of worship. If you would go through the Old Testament and you would look for the two words, fall and face, anytime someone falls on their face in the Old Testament, it is an act of worship to either the Lord or a messenger of the Lord. In other words, when people hear from God or his messenger, they fall on their face. So I think Moses and Aaron are worshiping God in this. But the intriguing thing for me is why do they do this? And it seems as if they're afraid of something or for someone. I think they're either afraid for themselves or afraid for the people. Okay, and you can make a case either way. Matter of fact, scholars have done this over the years. They say, well, they're afraid for themselves. I mean, the people just said, right? They just said, we're going to find a new leader. You know, who's the leader currently? Moses. 
So it may be that he responds to that. When he falls on his face and he prays to God that he would help him. Uh, now, I think there's a better solution. I think that they are afraid for the people. For the people. For when I see Moses falling on his face before God, it is an act of worship, but normally it's a means of him interceding for stubborn people that he knows God is just about ready to judge. So I think it's better to see this is urgent. He, he recognizes that urgent intercession is required for these people. For he knows when they complain about the leader God had given to them, that's actually them complaining about God and what he's provided to them. So I think, I think they know what's going to happen. And so they fall on their faces before God. One commentator did a great job. He explained how Moses and Aaron's posture here reveals this as an urgent issue. He writes, The more ordinary posture of prayer among the nation of Israel seems to have been standing. But in cases of special emergency, when they were deeply distressed and exceedingly anxious for a favorable response, they resorted to kneeling and in the utmost ardor and importunity of prayer, they would fall on their faces before God. So Moses and Aaron begin to intercede for the people. That's verse 5. Verses 6 through 9, Joshua and Caleb appeal to the whole crowd. Okay, so while Moses and Aaron are just laying there, interceding for the people, Joshua and Caleb appeal to the crowd. They explain the land is exceedingly good, and God can bring us the victory. In their appeal, they use this common metaphor of the ancient times. It says, the people will be bread for us. You see that there in the text? They will be bread for us. I think that's, you know, uh, just a, uh, a figure of speech to basically mean that we will devour and consume these giants uh, like a hungry man devours bread. It's going to be easy. They express their confidence by saying uh, right after that the, that the protection of the people is removed from them. And that's a, a very figurative uh, expression in Hebrew. It could be translated, their shadow or shade has departed from them. If you were to do it literally. I think what uh, Joshua and Caleb are suggesting here is that God is not offering them any shadow or shade. Uh, in the Psalms, I think in Psalm 91, the first verse of that psalm, uh, the psalmist talks about dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, and he uses some of the same words. There, of course, we know what that means. That means to dwell safely under God's provision and his protection in our lives. And so Joshua and Caleb, they say this about the giants. These giants have no shade, no shelter. They have no protection. God is on our side. He is with us. And so, uh, Joshua and Caleb believe that these, these, these giant enemies are vulnerable. So they try to, I think, to infuse confidence in the crowds, but the crowds will have none of it. So you see the response. Look at the very first part of verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So preacher, let me get this right. Moses and Aaron are praying on the ground Joshua and Caleb are 
offering words of encouragement, and the people are picking up stones. You see, this this is a very uh, powerful story. And I believe what you see here is an example of how resolute sinners often respond to displays of prayer or intercession for them. Or how they might respond to words of encouragement or confrontation for us from the scripture. This past week, uh, Carissa and I became aware of a young man that we knew in a former ministry location who came out as transgender. This young man made the, the, the announcement in a lengthy paragraph on Facebook. It was connected to four images of him dressed as a woman. In his comments, he attacked the church to which we formerly belonged, and his rebuke was quite scathing of that church. It was very interesting to me, though, to read the comments under that. The comments under that, most people in our culture uplifted this young man, supported him, and embraced him as a victim of bigoted men and women. Only one or two people tried to kindly turn him to Scripture or confront or use the Scripture to challenge him. But the majority would have nothing of it. To them, the Scripture is not authority. Culture is authority. Toleration and love, love, is authority. Yet this, I think, is an example of people who have become futile in their thinking, claiming to be wise, they have become fools, therefore God has given them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and their whole way of thinking has become corrupt. Now, men and women, maybe Facebook is not the best place for a Christian to respond like. I think it would be better to do it in, in person, but may we not be surprised. Resolute sinners often respond to words of prayer, intercessions we make for them, or words of encouragement and confrontation with the Scripture. They will respond with hatred. In this wilderness setting, the crowd's hatred for Joshua and Caleb involves a stoning. Okay, so that's what they're going to do. But that's when God intervenes. Look at the middle of verse 10. That's when God moves. It says, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So the people have stones, and they're ready to kill the leaders, but the glory of the Lord appears. The glory here is the outward manifestation of God's appearance or presence. There are other places, I don't have time to take you there, like Exodus 24, 17, and you could just write that down and go there, where you see that the glory of God, when it takes this form, it can be seen as like a devouring fire. It's like an outward manifestation of the appearance of God, and it's a devouring fire. It's a very intimidated, scary thing. It's no wonder that it stops the people right in their tracks. Okay, so the glory of the Lord is appearing at the tabernacle to all the people of Israel. This is the end of the first scene. 
The end of the first scene, the crowd scene then, does not end on a very optimistic note. The people have stones, they're ready to throw them, and then the devouring presence of God appears in a cloud over the tabernacle. Okay? But that leads us to the second scene, and what I want to spend the rest of our time on is the second scene I call the intercession scene. The intercession scene. And here we'll learn from the person who is zealous for God's glory. Okay, the, the one lesson we'll learn is, is from Moses, the person who's zealous for the glory of God. This scene goes from verses 11 through 25. It mainly involves a conversation between God and Moses. Okay, so the people just kind of drop off, and it seems to be this conversation at the tabernacle, likely in the tabernacle between God and Moses. And this intercession scene involves God's initial response to the people, Moses' intercession, and then God's final response. Okay, and so uh, we'll just go quickly through it. You see God's initial response in verse 11. Look there. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Here God starts by asking rhetorical questions. He uses that phrase, how long, how long, right? It's just to show that God is now impatient with them. So reveal to Moses the fact that it's time for judgment to begin from God's perspective. And he, he uh, gives us, I think, a very important uh, parallel in these questions. How long will uh, he tolerate those who've despised him and who have not believed in him? And so I think that those two ideas of despising God and not believing in him are roughly parallel in this text, okay? Uh, hating God and not believing that he's got the power and the ability to do something. That leads to two, uh, or a statement that God makes in verse 12. So he starts with those questions, then he makes statements, and he says basically two things. He says, Moses, what I'm going to do to these people is I'm going to send the pestilence down upon them and disinherit them. Okay, now, that word pestilence is a strong word. If you were reading through the, the, the Pentateuch and you came into Exodus and you saw that word, you would know that God decided with the Egyptians not to send the pestilence to them, like some sort of plague, because if he did that, uh, or severe plague, that would completely wipe out the people. Okay, so... If God sends a pestilence, the word for pestilence here, it means extinction of those people. So with the Egyptians back in Exodus, he says, I won't send a pestilence, I'll send the plagues. And some of them will survive. So what God says to Moses, I'm going to send a pestilence into Geta. And then he says, and I will start a new people through your sons. You see that in your text? Through your seed, Moses. Now, I think what he's saying here is not that God would fail to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham. Remember back in Genesis, God made promises to Abraham and he said he would fulfill them. It's not that, okay, I'm done with that. I'm going back in those promises. I think the point that he's making here is he will start with one of Abraham's seed, Moses, who's a descendant of Abraham, and he will start over so that the sons of Moses will be his new people, thus fulfilling promises to Abraham and to Moses. So God is determined to start over with Moses' children. Now, how do you think Moses reacts? We've already read this story once. 
okay? His reaction might surprise you. Look down at verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people and your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness." And now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Man, when I think Moses' response is so instructive for us, if you have had any sort of a hard time, I don't know how you'd have a hard time following this story. It's a great, powerful story about the character of God. You need to pay close attention now. You can still leave with a blessing as you think about Moses here. Okay? So think about Moses. Learn from Moses. Instead of agreeing with God's favorable impression of him and his offspring, Moses focuses on others. If you or I were in that position, I mean, they're just told, they have stones, they're ready to wipe you out, you're laying on your face, praying before God, you might think, you know, let me think about this. The sons of Belford, yeah, it has a pretty good ring to it we'll start over yeah that's what we'll do we'll wipe out these people but not moses no moses is concerned for others his focus is on others that's why i think this is a really good lesson for us he is particularly concerned about two others in this text and that's how i'd organize it first he's concerned with what this means for the people he knew that his intercession was something that could initiate. Uh, one man said this, a, he, he could initiate a unilateral divine activity. Moses knew that his intercession could initiate a unilateral divine activity whereby he would deliver the people. I like the reminder from one scholar, his name is R. Dennis Cole, he said, uh, but, for the, but for the intercession activity of Moses as the leader of the nation, the people might have perished. So Moses is concerned for the people. Now, this is not his ult- ultimate concern in the text. If it were, I think he could have made more of this before God. I think he could have said, talked more about the people and what it would mean to wipe them out. You know, God, think of all of the people that you're going to wipe out. Think of all of the vulnerable women. Have they had played a significant role in this? Think about the little children, God. Think about the babies. Think about all the innocent life. Think about the newlyweds, God. Some just got married. How cruel this would be for you to wipe them out. I think that's how we might pray. If we heard of the possible extinction of a race of people, but not Moses, Moses 
does pray for the people, but Moses is less um, interested in human interest than he is with God's. He does pray for them, but most of this prayer is actually about God. What I learned from Moses in this text is that he is radically God-centered in his concerns and prayer. So secondly, and ultimately, Moses is concerned with what starting over would mean for God. Moses is not for one second going to consider the possibility of a new people of God, the sons of Moses. Instead, Moses is zealous not for his own things, but for the protection of the perception of the character of God among the nations. God, what will the Egyptians think? What will the Canaanites think? What will the Amalekites think about you? You see, Moses is jealous for the name of God, not his own. And so men and women, as a point of application, when when we intercede for others, we should think of this as well. When we pray for our own church as it would ever languish or fail to produce the fruit that it should, we should not be concerned for our own glory, but for the further glory of our God. The more glory that he might receive if we would live in ways that were consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray like this. Oh God, change us. Fire us for you. Not for our own glory. Show your power, your greatness through us. Show them, God, who you are. And so what Moses does here is he appeals for God not to destroy the Israelites on the basis of three realities about who God is. I, I, I would just quickly summarize them this way. First, uh, the first basis he prays, God should not destroy them because of the fame of his own name. God basi- Moses basically, in a very bold word before God, says don't wipe them out because I'm concerned about what the people would say about who you are. I don't think Moses is trying to manipulate God here. I just think Moses is genuinely concerned for the the name of God. I think he confesses this to God because of his concern for the international reputation of God. You don't believe me, you could read again verses 15 and 16. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of the fame of your name will say, it is because the Lord is not able. See, as Moses appeals before God, he says, what about the fame of your own name, what the nations will think? Second, uh, Moses' basis that he says that God should not destroy them is because of God's former promises, verses 17 through 19. I don't know if you picked this up, but if you look in your Bible in verse 18, if you put quotation marks around verse 18 and you underlined it, that verse is a select citation from Exodus 34. Again, we don't have the time to go back there, but in Exodus 34, just after the golden calf incident where God thought about wiping out the people before, the only two times he does, Exodus 32 and here, in revealing his own character to Moses, he says, I am slow to anger. I abound in steadfast love. 
What Moses does is he quotes that from Exodus. Near the end of that quote, I think that he, he acknowledges the fact that God has every right, and it's according to his character, to punish people and their children down to the third or fourth generation. But look with me just at the beginning of verse 19 in our text. Verse 19, you still there? We're almost done. Verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. What part of that quote in verse 18 does Moses really appeal to God to? God, on the basis of the faithfulness that you display in your covenants with people, your steadfast love, don't wipe them out. I think he's got one more basis, and it's right after this. Keep reading verse 19. Just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now, finally God should not destroy them because of his former conduct and care for the people. Moses asked God at the end of verse 19 to be gracious with his people as he has been doing with them all along the way since they've come out of Egypt. So God, don't do it. You've been so kind to this people the whole way through the wilderness wanderings, the whole way in in Egypt and bring us out. Don't. Wipe them out. I'm going to have to close here soon, but I want to make a few applications, and then we'll just read the last section. As I considered the intercession of Moses, two main applications came to me this week and, and really challenged me. I, I hope and pray they'd be a challenge to you. First, I think Moses' prayers and his intercession should... Uh, inform the way we pray and intercede for others. So along these lines, I just ask you very gently, do you have a zeal for God and his name in your prayers? Is that your utmost concern? Do you care more for divine initiatives and reputation than you do human interest? Is that how you pray? Even when it comes to your own children, your own family? Oh God, make your name great through my son so-and-so. My daughter, so-and-so, and the events that she... God, would your name receive weight and glory from people? I think it should inform our prayers and intercessions for people. But the second application I have and um, get to here is... I, I just, you know, as we're reading Moses here, I just think this is one of the brightest moments for Moses, maybe anywhere in the Bible. He's a great interceder. I was thinking how nice it must have been to have Moses as a leader, such a great leader like this. But men and women, we have one making intercession for us who is a great high priest. One who is not only faithful in God's house, he's the only begotten son of God who always lives to make intercession for us. We too, men and women, just like Israel, we should be consumed in a moment because of our sins. 
but Christ always lives to make intercession for us. I mean, this intercession scene I've just described in this text is amazing. You've got Moses and Aaron on the ground, then you've got the tabernacle, you've got the glory of God come flying in in this conversation between Moses and God. But imagine the intercession scene in heaven today. Where our great high priest is interceding on behalf of our sinfulness. We have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's faithful over God's house. God's final decision comes in verses 20 through 25. I said we just read it. We won't read the whole thing, but you can. But look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Look at verse 9. No, I'm sorry, verse uh, 19. Please pardon. Look at verse 20. I have pardoned according to word. What an amazing moment, men and women. God is ready to wipe these people out completely, but Moses prays, he intercedes, he says, I, the creator of the universe, have pardoned according to your word, Moses. Like, who is Moses according to God? As you could continue to read in verses 20 through 25, God then has a punishment for the people. He's not going to wipe them out completely, but he will pardon them. It's a mitigated form of judgment, as one scholar said. He will punish the entire nation over a period of time. He won't kill them all immediately. He won't exterminate them. No one over the age of 20 will be able to get into the promised land, but grace still exists here because they will not be immediately judged and their children will be allowed to one day enter the promised land. He also has got some amazing words for Caleb, which perhaps next week we can pick out. But as we close, perhaps you've been struggling recently, believing that God exists or that he's in control. I would say to you, learn from the people who lacked faith. It's my prayer that as we go through these Old Testament texts, that were written, I think, especially for the second generation. The original readers, second generation are going to have faith. It's written for them. Don't repeat the errors. I think it's also written for us. It's written for us. So maybe you've been struggling with being skeptical of God's power and ability to provide for you or your family. I'd say don't be skeptical. Learn from the crowd. Learn what not to do from the crowd. All the people, all the congregation, the sons of Israel. Or perhaps you should learn today from Moses' God-centeredness. Learn from the person who, has, who was zealous for God's glory. Have you been conspiring, building your own, uh, to build your own dreams, goals, and plans? You want to be the greatest at work or at sports or at school. You want to make a name for yourself. You want people to respect you or at least remember you. You, you maybe want a nice car or you want a large house but I ask, but won't you be faithful in God's house? Won't you be jealous for his name with whatever time he gives you in this world? It struck me that perhaps in listening to this sermon, there's some of you who are at a very important decision point in your life. You're deciding, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? How am I going to live this life? 
my pastoral appeal to you is won't you be in all in for the glory of God? The glory of God for his name to make his fame among the nations. Men and women, perhaps even some young men and women, I can't think of a more important topic than to lay before you this morning that God has sovereignly brought before us. Won't you be like Moses and say, God, I am concerned for the fame of your name. Won't you live your life that way? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to walk through these scenes of this play, this true story. Lord, as I consider it, I prayed at the very beginning of the sermon that your name would receive glory. We have sung about the fact that you are, you're full of light. You're awesome in your power and glory. We read this story about Moses and the the whole congregation, about Joshua and Caleb and Aaron, and it'd be very easy for us just to to read this story, to think, well, you know, that uh, that was a decent sermon, I guess, through the text or whatever, but but not to be struck with the fact that you are the sovereign creator. Lord, give us a zeal for the fame of your name. May we be concerned for what people think of you when they observe us and our sin and other believers in sin. May we be willing to be like Caleb and have great faith, have a different spirit, different spirit than our culture, one that believes that you can, that you are able. And Father, I pray this morning, especially for any young person, perhaps any teenager, who is considering what to do with their life, the different ways they can go, different dreams or goals they could try to accomplish. But Father, I pray that you would grip their heart I pray that you would give us some teenagers who have zeal like Moses. God, what about your name? What will the nations think of your name? Lord, to have young people like this, it would be extraordinary. It would be exceptional. It would be only a work of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We pray for us. Pray for all of us that we would have that same spirit as well. In Jesus' name, amen.